0: amen it's good to testify about the goodness of our father and let's take our bibles and let's look to romans 20 excuse me matthew 22 today matthew 22 i want to pick up where we left off last week after 146 years ringling brothers and barnum and bailey circus had its final curtain call and the circus closed And we would not have a circus in the United States of America if it were not for the circus that is taking place in Washington, D.C. these days. And it's certainly a circus, but it is no fun at all, is it? I'm grateful, as well as so many of you, that we have governing documents that were set a long time ago to help when our government leaders lose their way to come back to what is true and right. So I want to talk today about does the Bible have anything to say to God's people when we disagree with our government or when we disagree with the leaders of our government or when their values are different than our own. And I want to talk about those things and apply the biblical principles and the understandings that God is going to give us through Christ today in His Word that will be relative to the circus that is now taking place in the government lives and i wanted to do it in a way not to be uh, condescending condescending or ridiculing but in a way that is honorable and respectful so let's look today in the uh, 22nd chapter beginning in verse 15. the pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him with his words and if you remember jesus has just directed a parable to them and they recognized that he was speaking to them about them and they didn't like that so the Pharisees pull away and they're going to try to figure out a way to trap Jesus with his own words <laughs> which is absolutely ridiculous when you are truth you don't get trapped in words when your words are eternal there's nothing that temporal man can do to trap you So it's a ridiculous notion, but at any rate, they're doing it. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, you can just see that happening with uh, tongue-in-cheek, right? That they're not being genuine in their characteristics of Christ here. Uh, In a tongue-in-cheek way, they're trying to Uh, sort of fakely uh, appear to be siding with him, but they're completely opposed to him. So tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Remember the biblical term for hypocrite is in the first century. uh, They were the actors of the day who would speak multiple parts in the play that they were acting in, but would hold up various masks for the parts that they were playing. So they're people who hide behind a mask. So when Jesus says hypocrite, he's saying you're hiding behind something. The the real you is not being exposed. So why put me to the test, you hypocrite? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Now the drama has been unfolding and it is coming to a heightened point. Last week in that parable that Jesus spoke, the, the parable of the wedding feast, he talked about people who were coming or those who had not come and how they were being rejected by the the son who was being married and rejected by the father who had sent out the invitations. And the Pharisees and the other leaders of the religion recognized Jesus was talking about them, that they had rejected God's invitation to come into the kingdom of God or they were attempting to come into the kingdom of God with their own righteousness, and by which we all fall desperately short of that. So he, as he was speaking it, they recognized that he was speaking about them, that they would be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a very vivid description of hell. And so they scurry away back to the Sanhedrin, the gathering of the religious and political leaders in this day, And they are going to conspire against him. They're going to try to figure out a way that they can trap him and cause the crowd that is following him to go away from him, to be rejectors of him, or to cause Rome to come down on him in a pretty harsh way. So they're trying to figure this out. And so they they pull in their their, uh, disciples and the Herodians, and they determine, here's what you go and say to him. Now, understanding what is happening is just crucial to us to get the fullness of the passage. So let's go digging a little bit into some of the background. 4,000 years ago, God made a promise to Abraham, and the promise was going to be in a covenant form that he would be uh, establishing this covenant with Abraham and his offspring after him, and it would be a lasting covenant that would go throughout the generations. And here's what God said in verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So two things are going to come out of this text. First that God says I'm going to be your God and you will be my people. Second is this great benefit of the covenant is that you will be given a land. And the land is the land of the Canaan uh, the region of Canaan. So in this covenant promise God says I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to give you a land. Now, that's essential for you and me to get as we're looking into the the section of Matthew 22. Because God gave them that, he also said, in relationship with me, there are certain things that must be done. In fact, he warned them about this, saying that you shall keep his statutes and his commands. And if you do, all will go well with you. Now, The rest of that is it's going to go well with you in the land. You see that latter part there? It's going to go well with you in the land that your God is giving to you uh, for all time. So now we have another layer of this. Not only has God made a promise that he is going to be the God of the people and the people will be his possession, but they will be given a land. But God says, you've got to obey my statutes and my covenants in order that it might go well with you in the land. In fact, he said that if he does not go well and they disobey him and reject him in the covenant, that he would come against them. Look at Leviticus 26. I will set my face against you. And you shall be struck down before your enemies. And look at this last line. Those who hate you shall rule over you. So the promise was given, but it was conditional upon their uh, being in relationship with him and upon their obedience to him as their God. Now, throughout Israel, it was captured and recaptured 44 times. It was, it was taken over 52 times, and it was besieged 23 times. The, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed completely, twice. So you have this rhythm of God making a promise, but the people not holding their end to the promise, their end to the covenant. You have people that are rejectors of God as the one true God, and God brings destruction to them in order that they might come back to Him because the eternal is far more significant to God than the temporary, You do recognize God will give and God will take away what is temporary in order that we might have what is eternal. So God is always working in that way certainly working in that way through his covenant people. Now at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, six years prior, Rome had come through and captured the land. Uh, Excuse me, six decades, Rome had captured the land. And here they are under the emperor of Rome, under his rule. And this, of course, is going to be a hot topic. So when the Sanhedrin meet, and the Pharisees and the Herodians are sent to Jesus, they're going to pose a political question that has mixture of it with religion. And it is going to, they think, flash. It is going to bring about the bomb that they've been looking for in order to to trap Jesus. So in the day of the Lord, it was religion and politics that was a hot topic. And in the day of the Lord in the 21st century, religion and politics is the hot topic, isn't it? I mean, even to this day, a casual conversation about politics today can turn into a very quick and heated debate and some sharp disagreements can come about. So the Pharisees understood this. So they bring in some of the Herodians, a political group, They were loyal to Herod, the dynasty of Herod, who was the governor of of Galilee at the time. They were loyal to him. They bring some of them in. And, of course, they are ultimately loyal to this guy. His name is Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar is the ruler over the land, and he has imposed his will and his way on the land. I can tell you his will and way is an evil will and way. He's about the most evil and wicked person that I've ever read about has a salacious appetite for the sensual and the sinful. A very evil man. And he is ruling over them in in the Roman Empire, in the land that God had given to his people, and he is ruling over them. So when the Pharisees' disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, what do you think? Is it lawful for us to pay the tax to Caesar or not? They're trying to get him trapped with some political and religious language. So what's the big deal, you might be saying, about a poll tax? Well, a poll tax is a tax on the people. And all people are paying an income tax to Rome. A percentage of your income is coming to Rome. And you're going to also pay on the produce, on the gains from the land. A percentage of the gains of your produce is going to come to Rome as well. And the third major tax is the poll tax. That means every person in the empire is going to pay a denarius, a day's wage for a Roman uh, militant to to have uh, that tax paid to the emperor. Now that goes straight from the people to the coffers of Caesar Tiberius Caesar and of course the people recognize that that tax is paying for the offending army that is in their land so they're having to pay a tax a denarius here's a replica of one a denarius that is paid directly to the people who are in their land holding them as dominant people uh, being dominant over them as people now that's a big deal to them. Because what is the background? The background is God says, I'm your God and you're my people. The background is, that's the land that I'm giving to you. But the poll tax with um, Tiberius Caesar's image on the front, the bust, and then on the backside you can see he's seated on his throne there in a priestly garb as if he is high priest. The poll tax is saying... I am your God, you are my people, and you live in my land. Now you see why the Jews would have a problem with this. So it's going to ignite, they think, a difficult conversation for Jesus to have. Why? Because if he says, no, the tax should not be paid, it's not lawful for you Hebrews to pay that. If he says that, then the Herodians who are there loyal to Rome, loyal specific to Herod's dynasty, will go right off to Rome and let them know that Jesus is one who is inciting revolt, citing to be not submissive to Rome. And that will cost him his life. If he says, yes, the tax should be paid, and that's all he says, then all the Hebrews who are living in the area, who believe God to be their God, the land to be given to them by God, would see the disloyalty of Christ towards them in a nationalistic way. So he's in a real bind, at least they think he is. That's the trap. It's being sprung as they're asking him the question. But Jesus takes that coin that he's asked them for, they hand it to him, and I can just envision Jesus sort of looking at that, flipping it over and looking at it, and him saying to the people, uh, whose inscription is here, whose image is here? And, of course, the inscription is about Caesar, and the picture is of Caesar. And so they, they say the obvious that it is Caesar, and Jesus pronounces, well, then, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. And this term, render, is a big deal because it means to pay, to, to pay the debt that is owed. Let's say we're going to go... Somebody told me earlier they were going to go to Firehouse subs after uh, the service today. Let's say we're all going to Firehouse. (laughs) And we buy a sub. uh, Her favorite was the Italian sub, I think it was. You buy the Italian... How much is an Italian sub at Firehouse? Eight bucks? Oh, you're going to be that kind of crowd, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody... Thank you. I appreciate that, Dylan. Eight bucks, Dylan says. And I give the, the cashier a $10 bill... And I get my sub, but what do they have to owe me back? Two dollars. And we say that's the amount to be rendered because they owe that back to me. So Jesus is saying, pay back what belongs to Caesar. The coin is Caesar's. The tax is Caesar's. Pay that back to him, but pay to God what belongs to God. Now, when Jesus says that, we come to a conclusion that he is spotlighting two kingdoms, both of which are realities. There's a kingdom of the world and there is a kingdom of of eternity the two realities are very much there in the present and both of them are tied to God that's the reason why he's going to finish with a dialogue about render to Caesar what belongs to him render to God what belongs to him he's going to finish it with God because ultimately all things belong to him this spotlight is creating for us a moment it doesn't become the gotcha moment that they're thinking it becomes a moment when you and I begin to understand about the kingdom of God in relationship to kingdoms of the world. Every person must consider what is owed to God, both in the temporary and in the eternal. We must ask, how can we obey and how can we honor God as temporary citizens living in a country as we are eternal citizens living in the kingdom of God, living in the realm of eternity? How can we do that? Well, we must understand that all government, that is instituted is instituted by god now you might say well randy what i see taking place is not very godly i didn't say that i said all the governments are instituted by god and for the purposes of god because the word of god says all things are created by him for him for his glory so even the crazy chaos that we are experiencing in our country even that God will be glorified in that I pray that his glory will come when our country comes to spiritual awakening and we submit ourselves to the word and the will and the way of God but it might be that it goes all the way through Till the time that the Lord Jesus returns for his church, this thing may go chaotic all the way through to the end. And I can tell you, if it does that, when Christ Jesus sets up his throne and he rules and reigns with an iron scepter in his hand and the world is at peace, then the world will give him glory. Look what man does and yet look what God does. He will be glorified in this. And either way, we pray in earnest that He will be glorified as people come to repentance and come to faith in Him and submit themselves to His Word and the Spirit's counsel. What I'm saying is there is no sacred or secular divide in this world. In the end, God is amongst all things, for everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for His glory. Now, with that in mind, What are the truths that you and I need to cling to as we are living in the moment of U.S. chaos? What are the truths that you and I need to say, these are biblical, these are grounded, and as a U.S. citizen, then this is where I need to be. By the way, there's some in the room who are not U.S. citizens. They're from various countries, and I met a number of you. You can take the same principles and apply them to your country as well. Uh, No matter the region you're from, these principles apply. Kay was asking me when I was talking to her over the weekend about what I was going to teach on today. She says, oh, are you going to make Democrats, Republicans, or whoever mad at you? I said, I really don't think so because people are going to think that I'm for them whether uh, they know I'm a Republican, Democrat, or an Independent. They're going to think these principles apply, and they do. So this is not a partisan Uh, speech. This This is a talking, a teaching moment, a message about you and me who are in Christ learning to engage the truths of Christ here in the midst of chaos. All right, number one, Christians are eternal citizens residing in a temporary world. We're eternal, though we're residing in a world that is temporary. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, and we are citizens of the United States or citizens of whatever country of origin you're from you have both a temporary citizenship and if you're in Christ you have an eternal citizenship and so when Jesus says render to send uh, to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's he makes it clear this render to send uh, to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God the things that are God's he makes it clear that there are limitations to the things that are Caesar's Caesar has his limits, and so does the U.S. government. We should not allow our responsibility to the nation to encroach on our payment to the things that belong to God. So when Peter and the apostles are preaching, though they have been instructed to not do so in the name of Jesus Christ, they do it anyway, and in the end they say, we must obey God rather than men. So they've recognized that the eternal is more important and powerful than that which is temporary. So, though Jesus was instructed to obey the state, there were limitations to that. And though the apostles of Christ were told to obey the state, there are limitations to that. The state state has some authority over us, but God has all authority over us. So, I think we could probably summarize it to say in this way the obligations that we have to God cover not just the eternal, but also cover the temporal. Now catch this. That means that we are to serve our nation in the way that best honors God. And the best way to honor God. Number two, every authority is sovereignly chosen and placed in power by God. Every authority is. There's no sacred or secular divide in the world. All things are made by Jesus. They're because of Jesus and for him. Now, we have a hard time perceiving how it is that God is at work in our nation's leaders, most of them right now, or that government has a holy purpose to it. But it does because it's instituted by God and for the purposes of God, namely his glory. So that makes government, even when it's chaotic, it makes government a holy function of God. It may not be serving well, and it may not be doing the things of God well, but that makes it holy. And you and I should view it in that way. That means that we should be reverential about it. We should be honorable about it and about the people who God has placed uh, in those positions. I can tell you that there is a remnant in Washington, D.C., of strong Christian people who have deep, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I've been in conversation with them, sat in the room with them, and heard their definitive call to the gospel. I've heard them give reports about their gospel movement of discipleship among their peers, about the Bible studies that they're engaged with. So hallelujah to God. He continues to work through remnants. And we pray that that will sweep through D.C. But I can tell you, even if it doesn't, God is doing a holy work. God is doing a work of righteousness. It might be a work of righteous discipline, but God is at work and we should view it in that way and not see it in any other way. So may God have mercy on us. If he is exercising in the chaos to bring discipline to our nation, may he have mercy on us. And may the people of God pray that a spiritual awakening would would move through D.C. and all the way through all the states of the United States of America. And the people of God might rise up with a real revival and a spiritual waking taking a place among those who are lost. And that the word and the will and the way of Jesus might be known and exercised wondrously. May it be the holy moment of God that will bring him glory and us eternal blessings. Number three, we're instructed to pray for government leaders. As we get frustrated and as we are mystified by the chaos, it is perhaps that we will stop praying for our leaders. But God says very Specifically, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I just zoom in on that section. Oh, God, would you do a work in us that we might be leading peaceful lives, quiet lives, godly and dignified. May that be evident as you're moving in our midst And uh, Paul says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So even if we feel disenfranchised by our government leaders, we are obligated in Christ to pray for them. And those prayers will make an impact on those representatives of our country. Uh, Number four, I think it is. In a republic, elected leaders represent and reflect the people. Are you writing along with me? And that's how I know that you're somewhat engaged with me. In the Republic, leaders represent and reflect us. Now, that's a big deal. Because if they represent us, which is what we talk about the most, then we feel like we're getting what we ought to get. But when they represent us, maybe it's we've got what we ought to get. Seventy-five percent of U.S. citizens claim Christianity, according to a 2015 census. Seventy-five percent. Now, I can tell you with all certainty, as you can tell me, that 75 percent of our nation are not followers of Jesus Christ. They might claim Christianity, but they don't live out the principles of Christianity. They certainly aren't living as a transformed, born-again saint of God With the inspiration of the Holy Spirit moving and guiding their steps and their will and the way. So, could it be that DC is a reflection of us as a people? That all the corruption and sexual immorality and deceit and divisiveness and bias and hatred that is so evident in DC right now is actually a mirror reflecting back to its people? Could it be that that's who we become? That that's who we are? You say, well, I don't know if that's true, Randy. Well, I'm telling you, that's the plot line of every entertainment source of America today. And if you're entertained by it, then you probably are that. So the representation and the reflection of our leaders is really a damning view that we ought to recognize we need Jesus in this country. We need Jesus among people who claim Christianity. We need to be sources of light in the midst of the darkness that is so prevailing in our country today. We need a God-stirred spiritual awakening in this land, and we need the hearts of American lives who claim to be Christian to to be gained in transformation. Here's what the Bible says. He said it to the people of Israel, but I think we can take the principles and apply it to our own lives today. We need to humble ourselves and pray. And seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways. And then God will hear, hear from heaven. He will forgive our sins and He will heal the land. And then last, no matter how shifty and chaotic the world and government is, King Jesus remains the same. we we'll just settle into that truth for a moment. King Jesus does not change with the flattering words of the Herodians that are spoken in a disingenuous way to Jesus. They say to him all these things. And here's what they say, teacher. That term is not rabbi, by the way. That would be one way to say teacher. This term is even more uh, pointed than that. This is master teacher. In other words, you're the teacher who teaches teachers. You're the teacher with authority. Teacher, we know that you are true, that you teach the way of God truthfully, that you don't care about anybody else's opinions, and you are not swayed by other people. In other words, you are rock solid in your truth. Now, they're not saying this with integrity. They're saying it uh, just trying to... Uh, get him to go along with the ruse that they're bringing about. But is that not true? Yeah, if I were going to summarize that, I would say, yes, Jesus, you are true and honest. And you do teach truth. And you are not deferring to other people. You are who you are. You're the one with the authority. And you are unbiased. You're not looking at people with bias. That is Jesus. You know what I think he would say to us in the U.S. right now? Keep your eyes on him, the author and the finisher of your faith. The most spiritual thing we can do, perhaps, in all of this is turn off CNN and turn off Fox News and put your eyes back on Jesus. Stop concentrating on all the chaos and start concentrating on the one who is immovable and unchangeable. As a young adult, I went to Ringling Brothers and Barnum. Barnum Bailey Circus. At that point, it was a three-ring circus. Anybody go to that three-ring circus? Raise your hand if you did. It's not embarrassing to admit you went to a circus. It's a good thing. It's a happy, it's a happy life when you're at a circus. And the three rings were there, and I was seated sort in the cheap seats. I could see what was going on, and I'd focus in. I'm focused in on ring number one and all that's going on, and And I hear these cheers just rise up in the crowds. And I'm thinking, what are we cheering for? I don't see anything in number one. Well, it's something about number three that's being cheered over right now. Anybody remember how frustrating that is? Because you ought to be engaged with what's happening, but you can't quite figure out what's happening. It's not in number three anymore. Now it's number two. And you're focusing on that. I kind of get that that's where I am these days. I don't know where to focus. There's a lot of movement in our country And there's a lot of screaming and cheering going on. And there's a lot of joking going on. And I don't know where to focus. What I need to do is what you need to do. We'll see the circus when we have the right filter of God's Word on our eyes. And we begin to see all that's going on in the nation and all that's going on in the world See it through this book, and you'll see it more clearly on the other side. Just trusting that God is doing what God is doing. Trusting that what is temporary in our country or in the world is going to be taken over by what is eternal. That God is at work. That Christ Jesus is on his throne. And he will reign one day on earth and he will gather us together and we will reign for all eternity. Until that time, what are we to do? Well, Jesus says this, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So if I were going to put it in my words today in our country, I'd say render to the U.S. what is the U.S.'s. So I think there's four things that the scripture says to us about that. The references, I think, are in your handout today, so you can go back to it later if you want to. The Apostle Paul and Peter give us clear instruction about this, and so does Jesus. Number one, obey the laws of your land. Number two, pay the taxes you are assessed. Number three, honor. And number four, respect your government. Now, you might say, well, Randy, they're not doing things that are honorable They are in a holy position established by God. In place of God, they rule us. That does not mean they're doing it well. But because it is an eternal holy position that God has placed for himself in those positions, moving towards them, through them, for us, we are to obey, pay what is owed, give honor, and give respect. Now, Jesus also says, render to God what is God. Now, you could argue that there are many other things that ought to be included in my list, and I would say you're right, but here's four of them. Number one, we owe God love. We ought to pay back to God love. What I mean by that is render means you owe somebody, you're paying them back what belongs to them. God has given to us love, so we owe him back love. Do we not love because he first loved us? Yeah, sure. And uh, recently we were, as a church, reading through the Old Testament portion of the the Pentateuch, the Deuteronomy was there. And uh, I think our memory verse for this week is the, the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And what does it say? You shall love the Lord your God. So we have a duty, a responsibility, and a debt of love to God. So we pay Him by owing Him love. We pay faithfulness to Him. God has proven to be faithful to us. We, in turn, are faithful to Him. We're paying back the faithfulness. Paul thought that was so important that he said from this point forward, by the faithfulness of God that has been given to me in Christ Jesus, I will forever be His bondservant. That's pretty faithful. So we owe Him love. We owe Him faithfulness. We owe Him honor because He is honorable. And we owe Him worship. Living in a glorious way unto him, be it at work or at school or in our home or in this building. We owe him worship. So those are the things that we ought to be concentrating on. Right, you and I are not going to fix Washington. And if it wasn't Washington, we're not going to fix Montgomery. And if it wasn't Montgomery, we're not going to fix Rainbow City or Gadsden. Only God can do things in that proportion. But you and I can do some things And we can do things in a way that is honorable to Jesus and honorable to his name. And I pray in this day of chaos that we are exercising in those things. Let's pause and pray about that. Lord, just the term, Lord, reminds us that you are the great ruler of all the universe and beyond. That you have been from time past and you will be from time in the future into eternity. You are the Alpha, the Omega, the great I Am. We bow our heads before you and we pay homage to you as the great King of all. We thank you for everything that you are doing and have done and will do in the future. One of the things we're thankful for is the country that you have given to us. We're citizens of a kingdom, a worldly kingdom that is going to be temporary. It's coming to an end. But we're also citizens of your kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. Our life is yielded to him, given to him. We pray that you would help us to find the perfect place of honor and respect and obedience and faithfulness to both of those kingdoms which are tied to you. Help us, Lord, because we're struggling We're struggling as a country. Help us because we have lost our moral grounding in the Word of God. Help us because we find it offensive as a country to speak the name of Jesus. Forgive us, God, where we've chosen not to pray unto your name or even acknowledge you as the Creator. Forgive us, God, and have mercy on us. And we pray, Lord, in your mercy that you would bring a spiritual awakening to the land. We pray that revival would come among people who are called by your name, that we would humble ourselves and pray and ask for forgiveness and walk in repentance, that you might heal our land. We pray, God, for our leaders from the... President of the United States, to Congress, to the Senate, the House, to the judiciary. We pray for every person who you have put in place and charge over us. We pray for them, Lord, that we might live peacefully and quiet lives in your will and your way. Oh God, we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that truth and dignity would reign in them. We pray, Lord, these things because You have instructed us to pray. And we know in Scripture and we know in our lives that prayer makes a difference. So God, I pray that you would raise up these folks in this room, including me. And daily we would pray. We would pray in earnest for our leaders. And we pray, oh God, that you would hear us from heaven and heal our land. As a repentant people come to you, heal our land, God, we pray. And if you choose, to not. If you choose to turn us over in our sinfulness, and if you choose for life to be chaotic, oh, by the Spirit of the living God, help us to focus on Jesus, who is the beginner and the finisher of our faith, who was in the beginning and who will be when the world is destroyed. We pray that you would help us to focus on him and have our eyes set on him, our heart given to him and our mind engaged in him. Help us to meditate on those things that are true, right, noble, pure, those things that are lofty and above and not to be debased. We pray that we would be a people who are different and thereby be light in the midst of the world of darkness. Oh God, we can't do this on our own. So we pray with humility that you would do that work in us. And Father, we pray that you would raise up people who are surrendered to Jesus who will lead us beginning in the next election and who will lead us beginning in the next election after that and that this country would be led by people who hear from you who submit to your throne and we pray that would bring honor to our king and our savior Jesus Christ in his name I pray amen